8 is tonight's scripture reading as it was last Sunday morning. All of Nehemiah 8, our text this time is verses 13 through 18. Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street or plaza that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning, 6 a.m., until midday before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit or platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Maasiah on his right hand, and on his left hand, Pediah and Mishael and Malchiah and Hashem and Hashbadana, Zechariah and Meshullam, thirteen of them. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all people, for he was above all the people on the platform. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Maasiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jozabad, Hanan, Peliah, and, or even the Levites, again 13 of them, caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, or governor of Judah, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day, the first day of the seventh month, is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day, the first of the seventh month, is holy 
unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth or rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. And then our text. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, everyone upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim and all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. You may recall from last Sunday morning, beloved, that in the Jewish calendar, the seventh month was the greatest month for Old Testament Israel for feasts or solemn assemblies. Last week, we looked at the Feast of Trumpets on the first day of the seventh month. And we noted that Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah 8, verses 1 through 12, is the longest passage in Scripture on the Feast of the Blowing of Trumpets. That it is also the most interesting passage in Scripture on that Feast of Trumpets. And on that wonderful feast day, they held a great public meeting near the water gate with various striking features before, during, and after that celebrated feast. 
You may also recall from last week, or your general Bible knowledge, the next feast on the seventh month in Israel, namely the Day of Atonement on the tenth day of the seventh month. That was a day of fasting and afflicting the soul, symbolizing repentance towards God over sin. And the striking imagery of the two goats, one being sacrificed and the other sent away off into an uninhabited land, speaking of redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ, the sacrificial goat, issuing in redemption applied to us and in our consciences, our sins going away, as it were, on the back of that second goat. And that was also the only day in the year in which the high priest alone went into the Holy of Holies. And this ceremony of the Day of Atonement is described in one chapter of the Old Testament, Leviticus 16. And the significance of the Day of Atonement is explained in various places in one book of the New Testament, namely Hebrews. Well, Nehemiah 8, the chapter we've read twice now, Nehemiah 8 mentions the Feast of Trumpets, verses 1 through 12, but not the Day of Atonement. They held that feast, but the Spirit didn't see anything particularly noteworthy to record in Scripture for the abiding edification of the church. Which brings us to the third, and in many respects, the greatest feast of the seventh month in Old Testament Israel, namely the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And so the seventh month contains two feasts which begin with the letter T and which are both plurals the Feast of Trumpets last week, and now this week the Feast of Tabernacles. And these two feasts that begin with the letter T are found here in Nehemiah 8, the Feast of Trumpets, verses 1 through 12, and the Feast of Tabernacles, verses 13 through 18. Let's briefly compare them. This bit gets a little bit harder, so I ask for your special attention. Let's compare them with regard to duration, how long they last. Trumpets, one day. Tabernacles, eight days. The date, if you recall, the date of Trumpets, the first day of the seventh month. The date of the tabernacles, the 15th to the 22nd of that same month. 
Let's approach these two feasts with regard to pilgrimage. That is, the feasts that required all adult meals to make the journey to Jerusalem. Trumpets? No, not a pilgrimage feast. You didn't have to go up. Tabernacles? Yes. And so this Feast of Tabernacles would have been one at which especially the pilgrimage psalms were sung. You're all familiar, I trust, with Psalm 119, the big long one, the psalm of the Word of God, 176 verses. Well, immediately after Psalm 119, the next 15 songs are the psalms of degrees, degrees upwards, the psalms of ascents, specially designed to be sung at the pilgrimage feasts when the Israelite adult meals went up. Those 15 psalms are a tenth of the 150 psalms in our Bibles. Now, like the account of the Feast of Trumpets in Nehemiah 8, this account of the Feast of Tabernacles is remarkable. It is the longest Old Testament historical record of a Feast of Tabernacles. There is actually a longer chapter that's found in the New Testament that mentions the Feast of Tabernacles, but we'll come to that near the end. This is also the only historical record in Scripture that mentions the making of tabernacles or booths from branches. Leviticus 23 says that in keeping the feast, you've got to use branches to make your tent or booth or tabernacle. But this is the only historical passage that explicitly mentions the construction of these booths. So I say to you that our text is one of the very greatest feasts of tabernacles ever celebrated. And yet, strangely, perhaps at this stage of the sermon, strangely, you can actually keep a better feast of tabernacles than even the one in Nehemiah 8. Let's turn then to a great feast of tabernacles. First, the biblical preparations described in verses 13 through 15 of our text. Second, it's joyful celebration, 16 through 18. And third, it's Christian fulfillment, where we'll turn especially to that New Testament chapter. A great feast of tabernacles. It's biblical preparations, it's joyful celebration, and it's Christian fulfillment. Now, though the Feast of Tabernacles only began on the 15th day of the seventh month, we are specifically and strikingly told that its spiritual preparations began many days before. Its spiritual preparations began 
at least 13 days before. On the second day of the 17th month. Nehemiah 8 verse 13 says, On the second day of the seventh month, were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And so on that second day of that special month, Ezra the scribe read and preached from the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the Torah. And who was there to listen to that reading and preaching of Scripture? Not all the male Jews. That would have been a pilgrimage feast. But only the leaders. Verse 13 mentions the chief of the fathers of the people, the priests and the Levites. Only the leaders. And only the leaders on that day because they had a greater responsibility than the ordinary people. And they came together, the leaders, to understand the words of the law. Maybe the nearest we come to this in our day would be some sort of special classes for office bearers on the work of elders and deacons, say, or seminary training for those who are to become ministers of the Word. And we're told that the exposition of God's law on that second day of the seventh month included the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is mentioned in various places such as Exodus 23, Exodus 34, Leviticus 23, Numbers 29, Deuteronomy 16, and in some of those passages, the Feast of Tabernacles is called by its other name, the Feast of Ingathering. But whatever the reading was on that day, it definitely included Leviticus 23, because it's the only passage in the Pentateuch that specifically mentions that the Feast of Tabernacles is to be observed in such a way that it involves the cutting down of branches and the making of booths or tents. And Nehemiah 8, verse 14 and 15 reads, They found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches, pine branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of thick trees to make booths, as it is written only in Leviticus 23. So that must have been part of the Scripture reading on that auspicious day. But the spiritual preparations go back before the second day of the seventh month. They go back to the first day 
of that month, the Feast of Trumpets, 14 days before, where there was the reading and preaching of God's Word to the men and the women and any children who were able to understand for six hours. So there was a great communion of the saints with the Lord in heaven and with one another. And so it was that the next day after this spiritual feast, the leaders found it in their hearts to ask for and receive more of the same. Teach us from the Scriptures again. They were stirred up to ask. And before that, before that, the people had asked on that first day of the seventh month for the exposition of the Word because they were spiritually edified through their finishing of the wall, the perimeter wall all around Jerusalem, just a few days before that wall being finished on the 25th day of the sixth month. After 52 days, seven solid weeks or so, of working together with back-breaking, sweat-inducing labor. And so, our text, considered in its context, is just another place in God's Word that speaks of the virtuous spiritual cycle. You have believers working together, learning the Word together, worshiping together, with one good thing leading to another, and stirring up the people of God for more good things, something akin to what ought to be happening, and I trust is happening here, whereby the saints diligently frequent the house of God Lord's Day 38 of our Heidelberg Catechism, which strengthens us to study the Scriptures, which drives us to private prayer and family devotions and Christian fellowship, good works and joy in Jesus Christ, the virtuous cycle where things go up and up and up, hopefully indefinitely. And you're familiar for familiar with that other cycle that also begins with V, not the virtuous cycle where you go up, but the vicious cycle whereby you go down like an airplane that's been shot and it spirals out of control and then boom, it lands and those still on board are dead. The vicious cycle goes like this, although I suppose you could enter the vicious cycle at any point. You neglect church services. The Bible becomes insipid, even boring, even the most dull book in all the world, because the devil can drive you to that point. You no longer pray because there's little spiritual motions in your soul. And Christian fellowship and even meeting other believers becomes obnoxious and something to be avoided until, going down and down and down, God, by His grace, 
brings you back to himself through chastening, that is, painful agonies. Hebrews 12 says it's like the scourging or whipping of a son until through that chastening the believer is brought back to repentance towards God, serious repentance, and true vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. And we get out of the nosedive and we start going upwards again. Now, along with what we've been calling the spiritual preparations for this Feast of Tabernacles, there are also what we may call its practical preparations. Through this exposition of the Word, provided especially by Ezra, the leaders in Israel understood what this Feast of Tabernacles entailed. And they realized you know, we need to tell the people of God that the Feast of Tabernacles involves the making and dwelling in tents or tabernacles or booths. We need to explain this change, this requirement of the people of God, because we haven't been doing this properly of late. We need to explain that this is biblical. And to help them in the way of their duty before God, we ought to give them pointers as to where to get these branches and, of course, the need to have an axe or a saw to hand. Nehemiah 8 verse 14, when they found written in the law which the Lord had given by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month, they published and proclaimed in all their cities and in Jerusalem, so that everybody knew, and nobody had any excuse, saying, Go forth unto the mount. That mount is known by the mount of the name, the Mount of Olives. Because even then olives grew on that mountain range that ran north south on the east of Jerusalem, because the text says, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches, ah, and pine branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, to make booths, as it is written. Martin Luther, at the beginning of the Reformation in Wittenberg in eastern Germany, he studied the Word of God and believed its teaching as regards doctrine and practice. But he did not just turn everything in the church and its worship services upside down immediately. Instead, he preached and taught the Word of God bit by bit, building up the congregation, explaining to the church what changes needed to be effected in the congregation and in its worship services. And then when the people saw that these changes were biblical, and when their consciences were rightly informed, then Luther explained that we need to implement reforms 
in the church, in our offices, in our discipline, in our worship. And we need to implement reforms in our home life. And this is what this would look like. And in our own personal walks with the Lord. Luther explains this is how he did it. Because he understood too that otherwise without justifying the changes on the basis of a proper explanation of the Scripture, it would never work. People would never buy into it, so to speak. And otherwise, if there was this top-down imposition of change, it would only ever be legalism, even if people decided to say, yeah, okay, we can go along with that. Conscience needs to be informed. People need to see that this is the will of God. And this is what Ezra is doing here in Nehemiah 8. This is what Luther did in Wittenberg. Though as Reformed believers, he could have gone further as with the Calvin Reformation, but we commend him for the massive extent of change in accordance with Scripture. Because this is the way of church reformation generally in a congregation or denomination in the history of the New Testament church. You preach the Scriptures, justification by faith, the sovereignty of God, and you explain the Word of God, and God touches His hearts, as He did here, bringing light and joy. Because we have here another, like last week, another joyful celebration. Picture the scene. And behold, the striking obedience of these people. There they are, east of Jerusalem, chopping down branches or sawing down branches on the Mount of Olives. That same mountain which David had ascended 500 years earlier when he fled his capital city, having understood that Absalom was on the march from Hebron and had sought and would seek to kill him. On that same mountain, the Mount of Olives, 500 or so years after our text, Jesus Christ would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, a certain place on that mountain chain, and where he would shortly thereafter be arrested by a cohort of soldiers armed to the teeth. Then after chopping down the branches from the Mount of Olives and dragging them back into the city, these Israelites in Nehemiah 8 sawed them to the requisite lengths, put up their booths, within Jerusalem's walls. And evidently, those who had a house in Jerusalem, they made their booths on the roofs of their houses, roofs in that land being flat, or in the courts or back gardens, or front gardens. The priests and Levites probably were the ones who built their booths in the temple courts, and those who lived outside Jerusalem set up their tabernacles or booths or tents in the two 
great plazas or open spaces relatively close to the temple. The water gate, beside the water gate and just inside it, on the east of the city, south of the temple, we mentioned that from the first eight verses of Nehemiah 8 last week, and the Ephraim gate in the north of the city, which gate pointed towards Ephraim's historic tribal allotment, and so to the northwest of the city. Verse 17 says, All the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, the assistant to Moses, and the man who wrote the sixth book of our Bible, since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And we need to pay close attention to this verse because it is not saying that the Feast of Tabernacles hadn't been kept in Israel for hundreds of years since Joshua. It's not saying that. And here's simple proof. First from Ezra chapter 3 verse 4. Ezra 3 verse 4 says, quote, They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written and offered the requisite daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day of that eight-day feast required. So they were keeping the Feast of Tabernacles in Ezra 3 verse 4 in the days of Zerubbabel. We read in 1 Kings 8 that the Feast of Tabernacles was observed in the days of King Solomon. And you may remember 1 Kings 12, which tells us that Jeroboam, the man who made Israel to sin, established a feast in the northern kingdom because he was a schismatic who took ten tribes with him, a feast which began on the 15th day of the eighth month. That is, he formed a substitute month for the Feast of Tabernacles, pulling the wool over people's eyes, those who were willing to be deceived. He manipulated the Feast of Tabernacles, which began on the 15th day of the seventh month, for his own feast in the northern kingdom on the 15th day of the eighth month. So that people would scratch their heads and go, yeah, I thought there was a feast in the 15th day and was it not the seventh month? No, eighth month. Ah, that's what the lie does. It makes, it looks a bit like the truth, but twists it. So Nehemiah 8 verse 17 is saying that this was the best feast of tabernacles since Joshua's day. Not the only celebration since Joshua's day. The best day. And this passage is saying this was the best feast of tabernacles for centuries because of the attendance. All were there. All 
of the returned Jewish adult males were there. Not just some, all of them. And it's saying that all of them not only came up, but all of them made booths. Not just everybody came and some of them made booths, but everybody came and all of them made booths. This is the sort of obedience that God wills for His church. And then it's saying, too, that all of them sat and dwelt in the booths. It's not just saying that everybody came up and everybody made booths, and then they lodged in a nice hotel where it was comfortable in Jerusalem, and they said, well, we've made the booths, and we don't want the grief of living in a tent for eight days. The passage is saying, everybody came up, and everybody made a booth, and everybody lived and dwelt in their booths or tents or tabernacles for eight days. Ah, the sort of obedience we want from our children. Not just you do one of the three things we ask, or two of them, but you do all of them. That's what I call obedience, says God to us. Listen out for that in Nehemiah 8, verse 17. All the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. You have to go all the way back to the sixth book of the Bible to find a time when everybody came up and everybody made booths and everybody sat under their booths. Ah. Now we've been speaking about this Feast of Tabernacles. We need to explain what it was about. The Feast of Tabernacles had a dual purpose. It was an agricultural feast. That's where you get the name, the Feast of Ingathering from. At the end of the harvest, mid to late October, an agricultural feast that's all brought in. Sheds are full of, of produce. And it was a feast, secondly, concerned with the history of redemption. And that's why it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. The tents or the booths to recall the wilderness wanderings for 40 years. Now, you've got to lay on the tent now for eight days, and I'm going to use that as a learning tool to make you think of what the children of Israel went through in the wilderness for 40 years. Brush up on Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the Psalms and all the other passages in the Bible that refer to those 40 years. And by the way, this also suggests an additional reason why Nehemiah 8 records that this feast was especially kept in Joshua's day. Think this through. In Joshua's day, Israel, as a nation, was in the promised land for the first time. The feast of ingathering. I've got my own farm in a blessed promised land. 
And in Joshua's time, the history of redemption, the 40 years wilderness wanderings, some of the people, the young people, had lived through that. So they were close to that period. They could identify with it. And that's why, too, Nehemiah 8 records the next greatest celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. Joshua is there after the first exodus from Egypt and entry into the Promised Land. And Nehemiah 8 comes after the second exodus, this time from Babylon, when they also journeyed back to the Promised Land, this time from the east rather than the south. So this Feast of Tabernacles was significant in Nehemiah's day because they're back in the Promised Land and they're exercising their laborers to bring in the harvest at this Feast of Ingathering again. They sense the privilege. And the history of redemption after this second exodus, this time from Babylon, and now they're back in the promised land. They've built the altar. They've built the temple. And the walls are all around Jerusalem. And they can easier identify with the Feast of Tabernacles. We know what it's like to come back from a pagan land. We've experienced it. Let me tell you a few other things about this Feast of Tabernacles. It was a time of glorious rejoicing, like last week's text. Verse 17 ends, There was gladness. No. There was great gladness. No. There was very great gladness. And why was that? Deuteronomy 16 commands that the people of God are to rejoice at the pilgrimage feasts, including the Feast of Tabernacles. The people were happy because of all of the wonderful preceding events. Jerusalem's wall, perimeter wall is up. Now we're no longer an utter laughingstock. We've got defensive ramparts. We have universal obedience in the church. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing where everybody in the congregation did everything they were asked of in God's Word and commanded to do? All are up at the feast. All are making the booths. All are dwelling in the tents. And if this church, or the church I pastor, if everybody in the church was faithful, and if everybody was zealous, and if it was a really, really wonderful place to be with everybody serving God together, while everybody in the church would be a whole lot happier and more blessed and joyful than we've ever attained before. Because we know how it goes the other way when you've only got some people doing some of the things and one or two people doing two out of the three things and maybe a few people doing zero out of the three things, and then everybody gets discouraged, and everybody's into that vicious cycle unless they watch and guard against it. Glorious rejoicing. 
The second feature here of this Feast of Tabernacles is that the reading and exposition of Scripture was again central. Verse 18, day by day, from the first day unto the last day, Ezra read in the book of the law of God. And this is amazing too, because Deuteronomy 31 only stipulated that you had to read the book of the law of the Lord at the Feast of Tabernacles once every seven years. That was when it was required. You had to do it. Here, in all probability, there was no special divine requirement, but everybody wanted it anyway. And this is what being reformed is about in the worship of the church. We read, we preach, we sing, and we pray the Scriptures because that's God's Word, and God's Word lifts people up and makes them joyful. And third, not only was this Scripture read and preached, it was followed. Verse 18 continues, They kept the feast seven days. Not merely just observed it and were up in Jerusalem. They kept it. The real heart and pith of it, they kept it. And on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the prescribed manner, which involved all of the requisite sacrifices as detailed in Numbers 29, which speak of the cross of Jesus Christ as a satisfaction for all the sins of the church and which are a sweet-smelling savor in the nostrils of Almighty God. Let's come to our third and final point. How do we keep the Feast of Tabernacles today? Because we can keep it, and we do keep it, but we're not Judaizers. The answer to that question is found in a New Testament chapter longer than Leviticus 23 or Numbers 29, which deal with the sacrifices of the feast, and longer too than Nehemiah 8, which contains a particularly great celebration of tabernacles. The chapter to which I'm referring, and to which it would be good if you could turn, is John chapter 7. John 7. John 7 verse 2 reads, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. The feast of tabernacles. Verse 14 says, Now about the midst or middle of the feast, the feast of tabernacles, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And then later in that chapter, we have these verses, 37 through 39. And it's not just some coincidence that Jesus utters these words at the temple at this time. He's actually entering into the real spiritual center and heart of the Feast of Tabernacles. 
Verse 37 reads, In the last day, that great day of the feast of tabernacles, Jesus stood in the temple courts and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified after his cross and ascension into heaven. This is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. In his state of humiliation, his life on earth, issuing in his crucifixion and burial, leading to his state of exaltation, his resurrection and ascension into heaven, session at God's right hand. The Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled through faith in Jesus Christ. Believe on me. The Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled when believers receive the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus. And to get down to the very point Jesus is making, the Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled when the Holy Spirit received through believing in Jesus alone flows out of our bellies to other people. Referring to our speaking the word, our mutual Christian love, service in the body of Christ, and the communion of saints. I'm going to read these verses again. Listen out for it. Jesus said, on the very last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, summing it all up, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, summing up the Old Testament in general, out of his belly shall flow rivers, not just little streams or one river, but rivers of living or flowing water. And at this stage, you may be perplexed, thinking to yourself, how is this a fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles? I didn't read anything there. There's a tent and eight days and remembering the wilderness wanderings. How is this the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles is also the Feast of Ingathering, the harvest. And the harvest was a time of great blessing. And all spiritual blessings are given us in Christ through the Holy Spirit. He brings the harvest, the Spirit of Jesus. The booths remind us, as New Testament Christians, of the wilderness of this world, 
so that the Christian ever in this world can only thirst, because there is nothing in the ungodly world that can satisfy the spiritual longing and thirsting of the believer. And people came up to the Feast of Tabernacles together at the feast, and it's fulfilled in this way, that the Holy Spirit flows out from each an individual believer to the others in the communion of the saints. I'll explain it further. Fitting it in to the three great pilgrimage feasts in chronological order so you can see how each builds upon the other. The first of the three great feasts is Passover, which speaks of atonement. The Lamb of God in Egypt all the way to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, dying for our transgressions. That's what the feast of Passover is all about, the cross. The next pilgrimage feast, the second of the three, is Pentecost. And you also know this one because it's very, very clear. The feast of pa Pentecost is the gift of the Holy Spirit from heaven to earth so that He comes down vertical. Right? So on the basis of Passover, the cross, comes the second feast, the descent of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. And the Feast of Tabernacles is the harder one to grasp, and it's the focus of this text. The Feast of Tabernacles says that the Spirit, whom Jesus purchased on the cross, Passover, and poured out on the church, vertical, Pentecost, is then, to complete the circle, as it were, is then spread like rivers from the bellies of God's people to God's people. That is, the Spirit purchased on the cross, Passover, poured out on the day of Pentecost, His coming down vertically, then spreads out horizontally, among the saints in the church. That's the movement of the three great pilgrimage feasts, and that's how they're united together to present three wonderful truths of the Christian religion as taught here by Jesus in John 7 on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, therefore, that believers have through faith in Jesus Christ is, number one, Passover. I go to the cross. I have the forgiveness of sins. Is secondly, Pentecost, the church has been blessed with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and now drinking Jesus as a thirsty soul through believing, the Spirit then goes out from me to everyone else, and from everyone else to everyone else. And that is the vision of the Christian church here in the ultimate keeping of the Feast of Tabernacles in the New Testament church. That's why everybody in the church is to participate, to participate in Christ, in the Spirit, 
and in the life of the congregation so that I'm not just some dead stick in the church. I'm not contributing anything apart from warming a pew on a Sunday. I'm drinking the Spirit, Pentecost, on the basis of the cross, Passover, and therefore I'm sharing communing. The Spirit is flowing from me in the words I speak, in the love I show, in the fellowship I give, in the communion of saints in the church. And if we hear, and I preach the same sermon in my own congregation, if we here or any other church are doing this, then we, and this is something to aspire to and pray for, then we can have a far better Feast of Tabernacles than Nehemiah and these Israelites had, a better one than Joshua had in the years after the conquest of Canaan. And then Zechariah 14 speaks of heaven as the great Feast of Tabernacles because there we have the cross, the Lamb of God moving among the redeemed community in the new heavens and the new earth, the Spirit is poured out on all of us, Pentecost, and the Spirit will flow out of the bellies of every one of us to every one of us in a far higher and more blessed way than you and I could ever even imagine. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray for thy blessing upon thy word that it may encourage and build us up so that we, Lord God, drink of Jesus and his Spirit and be used to irrigate and refresh and bring blessing to other people, even the beloved of thy dear Son. Forgive our sins, our many, many, many feelings in this regard too, through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Passover Lamb. Amen.